Welcome back to the Crash Course Podcast. My name is Craig Crash Collins, joined as always by Brandon Scott, otherwise known as B. Scott. We've got a lot to talk about on this week's podcast. Got a fun one in store for you guys. We're going to talk a little bit um, about Victor Oladipo, his decision to uh, not play but still travel uh, with the Pacers to Orlando. Um, and we're also going to get into what was a big weekend um, of racing at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the Brickyard, along with the GMR Grand Prix uh, for the IndyCar Series. Um, those hey, and Pennzoil 150. Don't forget about that. True, the Pennzoil 150. So a lot going on um, at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway this past weekend. Um, and then we're going to talk, um, we've got um, some special stuff we're going to talk about at the end of the next three podcasts. We're going to do, we, you know, we didn't really get a chance to uh, do a lot of stuff, you know, at the end of 2019, start of 2020, as far as like all decade stuff is concerned. So this week we're going to do the NFL all decade team. Uh, and then uh, next week when we do the MB or the MLB preview or two weeks from now, when we do the MLB preview, we'll do the MLB all decade team. And then we'll uh, finish it off at the end of July with the NBA All-Decade team. So really excited to get into some of that stuff. But, uh, but yeah, B. Scott, uh, it was it was a very – it was – you know what? We're, even though, you know, we still have no sports, the sporting news is picking up quite a bit, and I'm excited to get into some of this stuff, although I can say the whole uh, – uh, the whole I, I'm now 100% just kind of off of the whole basketball thing now. I was really excited. Um, I, I mean, I'm still excited for the thing overall, but now I'm significantly less excited. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, same here. And you know what? I, I, I'm, I love how we're going to start doing this all, this all decade stuff. As someone that works in social media, this is definitely a big go-to right now of when you're trying to figure out content and with no new news or nothing going on really, going with the all dec- naming your all decade teams, that's a great go-to right there. It's a yeah. good old trick, of the, a trick you pull out of your hat when you need something and it, it works. I mean, we didn't get a chance. I mean, we, I mean, we, we had a chance to, but I like at the end of the, at the end of the year, at the end of 2019, we were doing a bunch of stuff with the bowl games. And then right around the time, like we had stuff to talk about all up until we didn't have things to talk about anymore. And right. so now we've been afforded the opportunity to, to get into that. And what a perfect time. And then, Hey, we're officially starting the new decade of sports, albeit off to a peculiar start, um, but definitely uh, interesting to get into that. And I'm excited because uh, I've got some names that, that you probably would expect on mine, but also some ones that you might not expect because I didn't totally, I tried not to focus super hard on stats, but we'll get to that here a little bit later. Let's go ahead and start um, off with the Indiana Pacers. So last week um, we talked about the Pacers. We talked about the bubble. We got really excited about what the Pacers could possibly do. Um, you know, we thought about, hey, you know, could they possibly, you know, go 500? Could they possibly, you know, secure the five seed? You know, what their, what does their, you know, how could they possibly advance? We are talking about what they could do once the playoff uh, picture rolled around. And they're still going to make the playoffs because they're locked in. Um, they can't do anything. It, it can't be any worse than the six seed. But uh, last week, Victor Oladipo comes out and says that while he will still travel with the team, to Orlando, uh, he is elected not to play. Um, he, it's uh, it's for out of fear of re-injuring himself, re-injuring his quad, 
Um, he's got one year left on his 21, uh, where, where he'll make $21 million. That's next season, um, which, you know, of course, all the people on social media either are saying that, hey, he's going to leave. Um, so the heck with them. Some people are saying, well, we'll trade him. We, we're better without him anyway, which is 100% absurd. Um, but I, you know, I, I will say this, my, you know, we talk a lot about the Orlando bubble. My bubble is effectively burst. I uh, was super excited um, to watch the Pacers possibly not only, you know, have some good games towards the end of the, of the regular season uh, for 2019, 2020, but also get an opportunity um, to get into the playoffs and, and possibly win at least one. I don't, I mean, I don't know that they would have advanced past, you know, the first or second round, but I was definitely excited to watch, you know, playoff basketball with, you know, my favorite team ready to go. Um, and now, I mean, while they'll still be in the playoffs, it's going to look more like last year's playoffs where they got bounced to pretty early on. Um, and so I'm significantly less excited. I'm not as bummed that they're not going to be on TV possibly uh, for us to watch them, although they will be, it will be something to watch if they are, if they do find a way to like stream it somewhere or something like that. But yeah, I mean, it stinks uh, overall, but I'll like as much hate, as I've seen Oladipo get, you know, with Pete, I've heard people go as far as to say, you know, Paul George 2.0, which is absurd to me. Um, you know, just because for one, he's still on the team next year. He's due to make 21 million. And while he's been sensational for the Indiana Pacers, I mean, is he really going to go anywhere else and be the guy? And that's not selling him short. That's just saying, I don't know if he goes to a bigger market, where, you know, that's as well run, because, I mean, yes, he could technically go to the Knicks, but and that's technically a bigger market. But, like, is he really going to go somewhere else that's not only a big market, but where he's going to be the guy? Remember, he went to – he's been on, you know, a playoff contender before in Oklahoma City. He's been, you know, a, a slight – I don't know if you would call Orlando a bigger market as far as when he was on the Magic, but he definitely – I, mean, I think Orlando falls under – uh, the I, would, I would say maybe well. a better like destination, maybe a, a place that's like looked on a little, maybe a little bit better. I don't know. Well, Florida, any any team in Florida is always considered a better destination because of the no income tax right down there. So I don't know. You know, I mean, I'm just saying like I don't know that he can go somewhere else and be the guy. And also like I was, I mean, this season, you know, is not the season to be you know harping on guys that don't play because obviously there's health risks that go beyond even if you were healthy you know, going into the end of the season. So, yeah, I mean, even if you were healthy, I mean, this is the season that I think everybody gets a pass. I mean, we've seen, you know, Major League Baseball players opt out as well already. We've seen, you know, other NBA players opt out. I mean, you know, this is the year where there's, you know, obvious health concerns. You're going to be away from your family, um, you know, that kind of thing. So, I, I mean, you know, and I, I mean, and I get that he's, all, you know, he's obviously taking some of that, you know, risk, by still going down there, but I don't know. I mean, you know, this he's year, not worried about COVID. He's not worried about COVID. He's not worried about COVID, but at the same time, like, like there, there, there's a. I mean, in this crazy weird end of the season, I can understand the logic behind not wanting to play, not wanting to get re-injured, and just start fresh next year if there is, you know. And remember, I mean, they're going to start back up again only a few, you know, months after the season ends anyway. So, I mean. I'm not super worried about him going anywhere or Paul George 2.0. I mean, I it's it makes me sad, but I'm not 
you know, worried about him going somewhere else or not wanting to be an Indiana Pacer anymore, is I guess what I'm getting to. Listen, this has nothing to do with potentially re-injuring his quad or whatever it is. This has nothing to do with that. This is essentially his version of a holdout. This is his opportunity to have an incense, a holdout, and wanting a new contract. And, you know, I mean, obviously he's not coming out right out and saying it, but we all know that the contract talks between him and the Pacers have fallen flat. They're not going anywhere. Um, neither party is close to what took close to an agreement. So, Hey, why not? Why not just sit it out? You know, you're not willing to pay me for guarantee me a future beyond one more season. Well, when you need me the most, I'm going to, I'm going to sit out. I'm not going to play. If it was, I mean, obviously we know it's not about COVID. If it was, he was worried about COVID. He wouldn't even be going into Orlando. Has he signed anything? Has he signed anything as a pacer? Like, is he, or or is he still? Yeah. So, so, I mean, I can understand the argument. The contract that we got him on from OKC. Right. So essentially, I mean, I don't know what the track record is for the Pacers as far as signing guys while they're still in contract because you know that you still have some teams that are pretty, you know, big sticklers on we don't negotiate a contract while one's currently going on. So I don't know if that has anything to do well, with it. But- obviously, they, they're not a big stickler on that because they are in negotiations. They are right. – the, I mean, two, the two parties are in conversation about an extension. Oh, um, they're not even looking to – resign they're just looking to extend which is in, right you know um but I, it's I, I can see when it comes to looking at an extension now i can see why the pacers are hesitant one he hasn't played much since the injury and he hasn't played up to the way he has played in the past since the injury when you look back on his career He's had that one, two good year, one and a half good years with the Pacers, essentially. And you don't know what his form is really going to look like beyond if, it's, if he's ever going to get back to the way he was before the injury. And two, right now you don't know what the salary cap situation is going to look like moving forward. Obviously, right now there's a lot of talk that it's not going to go up for next season if it goes up at all. I mean, it may go up a little bit, but maybe not even at all. So that's going to be a big hindrance because you got to start – before you even consider Oladipo, you got to start looking at, okay, what are we going to do with Sabonis and Turner? Obviously, right now, you want to lean more towards Sabonis. But, you know, over, overall, I, I don't I, – I am kind of – I am concerned that Victor Oladipo – believes he is a bigger superstar than he truly is and is going to try to get like a Kawhi Leonard type contract when he's nowhere near that or a Russell Westbrook contract when he's nowhere near that yet. I mean, just, just because, you know, just because you've had a a few, a one good season doesn't automatically put you in that stratosphere. You, you, you need to play consistently like that. Show that you're, you're back to that type of form. I mean, I guess, yeah, I get not wanting to risk yourself for eight games. And, well, really, let's be honest, 12 games. 
because at, at minimum, um, you know, so that I understand that, but overall just, I don't know. This does make me a little bit concerned, I suppose about his future with Indiana, especially, I mean, we had this conversation recent last week about the whole Paul George debacle. And if the Pacers truly aren't willing, I mean, they've shown a little bit more, I guess ever since we've had that conversation, I've looked back on it and I've, they've shown a little bit more good faith than they you you want to believe because you know i mean my goodness they traded the farm essentially draft wise for malcolm brogdon and you know then they signed him to a, a good contract so i mean that right there shows you i mean he's is is he like a Kyrie? no but i think he might be in the he's a more sound player the more reliable the more consistent player than Kyrie. um I think if they can convince Oladipo to return um, and everybody gets healthy, I think this is a Pacers team that could have a, a future big, big three on their hands if they focus on Brogdon, Oladipo, and Sabonis. But it's, I have a feeling it's going to be hard to convince Oladipo to come back on a contract that's basically, you know, isn't in the level that he is – viewing himself as um but i mean he he's not there yet he's not to that level and i'm afraid that's what's going to ultimately end up having the pacers lose out on him and then him go to some team that is desperate for a superstar a team like the new york knicks that's like hey we got a lot of money and we don't have anybody come be our guy and he takes his this is my house over to New York and all of a sudden New York becomes his house. And, you know, I could see that eventually happening. And unfor- that's, that's unfortunate for both parties, to be honest. Yeah. And I mean, and like I said before, when we talked about it last week, I mean, that's what that, you know, the whole Oladipo scenario is how you'll know if the whole Paul George thing was true, where they don't want to be more than just a small market team. They don't want to be, you know, they don't want to, be burdened with having to sign all these big name guys. And so, and, and I guess that'll kind of come through in the negotiations because I also, you know, don't have a problem with Oladipo with a, the Pacers missing out on Oladipo if he's asking for way too much and B I don't blame Oladipo for wanting to go out and, you know, get that bread. I mean, that's, that's not, you know, anything that I think, you know, a lot of times like people think you have to be one or the other. You either have to be anti-Oladipo, anti-player, or you have to be, you know, you know, anti the team and anti-owner and that kind of thing. And I think obviously, you know, it's kind of how I felt, you know, in other contract negotiations. Like if, if a player is asking for something that's going to potentially, you know, put, push the team back and not allow the team to be successful – then because they're wrapped up in one giant contract, then absolutely fine. You know, let's look for, at the whole team as a whole. Now, if, you know, they were just being cheap and didn't want to have to resign them for more than, you know, if they're only going to, you know, take them from maybe 21 mil to 23 and a half mil, then yeah, we probably get a little bit more of our answer to the Paul George question. But at the same time, if he's wanting, you know, and I'm not saying he's asking this, but let's say he's like, hey, I want to be paid like, James Harden and Russell Westbrook well then obviously you're not going to be paid like that and obviously that's why those teams that are have those guys are you know wrapped up and can't really sign too many other guys 
you know, that are, that are of substance. So, yeah, but those are still the guys that are contending for a title year in and year out. Right. But that's because <laughs> those, well, but I mean, those two guys in Westbrook and Harden, that's really all that you need. If you put, if you take Harden and Westbrook off the, off the Rockets and put Oladipo on the Rockets and paid him what you would pay Harden, you would still not make it like Oladipo by himself couldn't like is not going to carry a team by itself to an NBA, you know, Eastern Conference Finals, NBA Finals, whatever. It's gonna oh, no. take it's gonna take other people like like James Harden by himself can take a team to the Western Conference Finals. Russell right. Westbrook on his own can take a team to the Western Conference. So that's Finals. why I'm saying Oladipo is not there yet for that. Right, type of but that's what I'm saying. If he's asking for that money to be paid like one of those guys, which like I said, I'm not saying he is. I mean, you know, he could be, he could be like, Hey, I want 25 mil and that's reasonable. If the Pacers aren't going to give it to him, then by all means go make it somewhere else. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I guess what I'm asking for superstar max contract money. No, he's yeah. not getting it. I don't think he even gets that from the New York Knicks to be honest. Yeah. He's I not think, a big enough name to market for the Knicks. Yeah. And I mean, had one all-star, one all-star birth. One all-star. The yeah. only thing that might scare me a little bit is that if there's something t- – if, like, Oladipo's, you know, willingness to sign whatever contract the Pacers might be offering is – offering him is contingent on if they bring anybody else into the fold. I don't know who else they could bring in. I don't think they really I – mean, honestly, they just need cohesion at this point. That's a, this is a team that's good. And if they really wanted to bring more people in, like another name or something, use you got to use Miles Turner as trade bait. You're going right. to get some. You're going to get good value for Miles Turner, so you don't have to worry. Of, I mean, his contract then basically flip flops with somebody else's, and it, it works out well. Right. I, I'm just I saying. Think, like, I think that's. I think the Pacers need to make that move first before. To show Oladipo, hey, look, we're working the roster in the best we can to get the right pieces in place. We just need everybody. To, I mean, heck, this year alone, if if Oladipo was healthy and playing back up to the way he was playing, this was a team that had an opportunity. I mean, T.J. Warren is a solid, is a really good player. Malcolm Brogdon at the point when he's healthy is a really good player. Heck, the Pacers are a much, much better team when Brogdon's on the court compared to when he's not. Um, Jeremy Lamb is a great sixth man right off the bench. Domas Sabonis is one of is going to is slowly becoming one of the best big men in the game. Miles Turner doesn't truly fit what the Pacers are doing, but is a solid, really good young big man who can shoot it from the outside and has you know some pretty good defensive presence on the inside with blocking shots. So if everybody was just healthy and had time to play together. This would be one of the te- best teams in the East, in my opinion, but it, it's tough because you, you're like, man, they're still middle of the pack. Well, they're middle of the pack because nobody's health. Nobody has stayed healthy. you all your best players aren't healthy all at the same time. Right. Do you, I mean, so if, so let's say the Pacers trade miles Turner uh, to try to appease Oladipo, and then Oladipo, like, do you, or for, I guess two-part two question, are you okay with 
the Pacers trading Turner, not knowing if Oladipo will come back. And if, and if you lose both Oladipo and Turner, are you okay with basically a team? Like, do you feel any worse off having a team that's Brogdon and Sabonis? Well, you're gonna, when you trade Turner, you're either going to trade Turner for draft picks or you're going to trade Turner for an NBA caliber player that's already playing. So a player along the lines of, of like salary-wise, that matches up pretty well and working with a team that has the need and everything. A team like, let's say you traded, I don't know, Miles Turner to the Boston Celtics for Gordon Hayward. I'd be okay with I'd be okay going forward with Brogdon, Hayward, Sabonis, TJ Warren, Jeremy Lamb. I, I'd be okay with with those guys, to be honest. And because then, remember, you're freeing you're freeing up. I mean, Victor Oladipo has a pretty big contract right now as it is. I mean, it's it's a fairly it's a fairly large contract, um, and. So if he decides to go somewhere else, all of a sudden all that money that you currently have wrapped up in him right now is open and you can go out and try to get yourself a player that's the same market value of Victor Oladipo. So there, there is, I, I think the biggest piece, if the Pacers really truly want to contend moving forward in the future with or without Victor Oladipo, no matter what, the biggest piece that needs to be moved to really move the team forward, in my opinion, is Miles Turner. Nothing against Miles Turner. It's not like he's holding the team back, but you, two of your best players play the same position and they don't work together on the court at the same time. That, that's an issue. So, yeah, you, you yeah. need to move. I mean, it makes sense. I, I mean, you see it in, like, baseball and stuff when, like, your best prospect you, – you have Francisco Lindor as your shortstop and your best prospect is a shortstop. Like, that's obviously not going to work out. You right. know, it's just like all – like, the Cubs have had outfield prospects for forever. So, they're, you know, all these guys, and eventually they just have to be like, look, I, where are we going to – you know, Eloy Jimenez, where are we going to put you? So, they have to trade him. So, it, it makes sense for sure. But, yeah, I, I mean, I guess – I guess all things considered, you know, coming back to the original topic, like I'm not concerned. I'm, I, I mean, I, I'm not concerned that Oladipo's – now if there's other like more writing on the walls, you know, as time goes on. Because I guess, I guess I also look at it as, from a standpoint of he's still traveling with the team. So obviously he could also, if he was really trying to stick it to him and voice his displeasurement, he could also not go. Right. And, so, I mean, it, it is it, – I don't know. It's all like, how do you feel about it? How do you feel about it, Shirley? I mean, I don't know. To be honest, it's I, 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 at this point, even I think it, here in a couple of weeks, we're going to be saying, okay, Victor Oladipo's not playing. No big deal, because guess what? Nobody else is. That's the way I, I feel like this is all going to end up being here in a few weeks anyways, where the, the NBA bubble is not going to get to have its chance to take off. So, you know, yeah, I mean, who knows what's going to happen as far as the bubble's concerned. Obviously, you know, there's still a lot of things that have to go. Like, like people are excited that sports are coming back, but I think I'm, not, I, I think I'm only going to be excited once they actually are playing <laughs> as opposed to this, like, kind of holdover waiting period as it's, you know, early July and it's at the end of July. So if we get through this month, and everything starts back up, then I'll, I'll start to be happy and believe again. But who knows 
because even then, after they start up, they could all they could always be shut back down. But hey, speaking of sports that are currently in session, yes, there is one that has finally been hit by COVID nineteen, and that is NASCAR, which along with IndyCar, took over the Indianapolis Motor Speedway this past weekend. Obviously, the big headline uh, once the weekend got kicked off was that uh, Jimmy Johnson in the number 48 Hendrick Motorsport Chevrolet uh, tested positive for COVID-19. So that was the first NASCAR driver uh, to have a positive test. Obviously, they took all the necessary precautions. He was never at the track never around any other drivers. It was basically him and his wife that came down with it. And, you know, nice NASCAR checked in on them uh, through Zoom and they did an, everybody did an interview and, you know, everything went on without a hitch. But hey, this past weekend was an amazing weekend at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Oh yeah, definitely was. Uh, It was the center of the racing world. I mean, you had the GMR Grand Prix on Saturday, um, on the 4th of July. Um, it was a, it was a fun race. I mean, it wasn't necessarily, I mean, it was, it was not the greatest race of all time, but it was still a fun race. It was an exciting it's race. What we've, it's what we've come to expect yeah. from the, the grand IndyCar Grand Prix. Right. Let's be honest. You had uh, Will Power start on the pole. He led 28 of 80 laps, including the first 17. Uh, Power, Scott Dixon, and Graham Rahal traded the lead in the middle stages of the race. His pitch strategies played out. Um, one of the big things was that Scott Dixon um, he, he was, you know, the tires he was on to start the race were really good and he was working his way through the field. So that kind of, it was, everybody believed it was going to be a two-stop race. And then the fact that, you know, everybody was kind of scrambling to get on the same tires that Dixon was. And so that kind of jumbled up the pit strategy a little bit. So that was interesting. Um, they just had one caution for four laps. Um, and then the guy that has just been the man ever since we talked about him on our, you know, if you could make up an Indy 500 squad, who would you have? And, you know, you know, we, we, we threw Scott Dixon's name into the mix. He wins yet again, um, just like he did at Texas. He led 26 laps, including the final 18. Um, you had Ray Hall, Simon Pagano, who you picked to win, uh, get on the podium. Colton Herta and Renus VK rounded out the top five. Um, it, it's the first time since 2010, it's the first time in a decade, the same driver won the first two races of the season. I, I looked that up because I was like, oh, would it be interesting to like go and see if whoever did that won the title they did not because it was will power back in 2010 so uh but still a crazy race uh scott dixon ends up getting the win which was awesome so i'm excited to see what plays out because isn't he tied for most championships all time so if he wins this year or no maybe he's not like he, uh, does he isn't it five because he's got five titles right i thought he he's was got five he's going to be he wanted to become a six time right six times is but six, is it, six it, the record though i'm not sure because I thought they, I thought I heard that stat by uh, Foyt, so someone can correct me if I'm wrong. Like that, Foyt has five as well, and there was some Foyt-related stat, and I thought it was championships. But go on, B. Scott. <laughs> but hey, it was the first time since the start of the IndyCar Grand Prix that a driver not named Will Power or Simon Pagano has yeah. won the race. So that that's pretty exciting, but. Scott Dixon had finished runner-up the last three seasons, the last three years of that race. So he was due his, especially after last year's where Pagano ran him down in the rain and passed him at the, in the last like, lap and a half. So he was due his. Uh, and then, but it was good to see Pagano end up uh, on, a, on the podium, considering he's, he 
had a rough qualifying, you know, qualified 20th. And then his car early on just was not having it. So they really worked their pitch strategy and got some things figured out. And, were, and they managed to pull together a top three. That again, after we after the Texas race, I had mentioned I, I feel like Simon Pagano is putting together a championship caliber season. I mean, obviously he is, but I mean, compared to Scott Dixon, who looks like he could just run away with the championship at this point. But the two best drivers this season have been Dixon and Pagano. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I, I think that one of the biggest factors for why the race wasn't so racy. I guess, is that a term? Racy? Um, is the fact that it was just so hot. Yeah. And, you know, IMS just never has the best surface when it's so freaking hot. However, however, we were proven wrong. I was proven wrong a little bit by, you know, man, you can't really pass when it's that hot. When the Xfinity cars came out an hour later and just put on an absolute show. I have never seen that good of racing on that road course ever. I mean, that was probably the most entertaining race of the entire weekend. Just the last 10 laps alone, just the top four or five guys battling it out the way they were. I mean, that was entertaining to the maximum. I I was edge of your seat racing right there. And I, I loved every bit of it that was the highlight of the entire weekend for me and I I don't think I would typically have thought going into the weekend I don't think I would have thought that yeah and what's crazy too is that uh, you know we'll get to it a little bit later but you know that kind of makes you wonder how successful the cup drivers could be as well on the road course and speaking of uh, the cup guys they took over on Sunday um, uh, with the uh, Brickyard 400, Joey Logano was on the pole. They did not actually have qualifying, but he did start first. Uh, there was multiple delays. Um, you know, I was telling you, B. Scott, off the air that, you know, I think, you know, I think Penske should make uh, NBC pay for the lights to go around the course because, uh, you know, even when – even even before, even when I was still going to the Brickyard, I feel like NBC and TNT always wanted to start the race at like three and four o'clock in the afternoon. It's like, guys, what are we doing? You know, and that, I don't know if that was before, like even before the whole daylight savings time, you know, gave you the extra light as well. So, you know, uh, a little bit crazy, but there was, a, you know, because when you have things like this, like a 55 minute lightning delay at the start of the race, and then uh, a scary moment on pit road on lap 15, uh, where, you know, there was a multi-car pileup on pit road that, you know, pinned uh, one of Ryan Blaney's team uh, up against uh, Ryan Blaney's car. Um, so that was pretty scary, although, um, you know, he was smile all smiles. He was taken off on a stretcher, so that was good to see, um, but a very scary moment for sure. I, 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 I had left the room and then came back, and they just showed an ambulance sitting beside, you know, the a couple cars on pit road, I was like, what the heck happened? And then I saw the replay. I was like, Oh my gosh. So luckily, you know, he got away, uh, you know, with not super crazy injuries. Did they um, say what it was if he was injured at all? Cause when you look at that replay, his leg looked pretty gnarly. Yeah. His left leg looked like it was bent in a different direction, at least his ankle. I haven't seen, I got, I didn't, I never got like words when he was, pull, when he was crawling away or pushing himself away, he would had it looked like he had his left leg up, yeah. And he was using his right leg to push himself behind uh, Ryan Blaney's car out of the way. But if you look 
closely at that replay, man, I, that ankle looked like it, that foot looked like it was twisted around sideways. And yeah. so I thought, man, that's a compound fracture, dislocated ankle. I mean, we've seen a lot of that stuff in the NBA um, and, you know, or in, in the NFL. That's kind of what it looked like to me. So, yeah, I, I never I got word what the specific injury was, but I mean, Obviously, it could have been a lot worse. So thank It did look like when they were loading him into the ambulance, they had one of those air casts on around his left leg. So, obviously, there was something. It wasn't yeah. just, oh, you know, some bumps and bruises and scrapes. He's, he's fine, though. Yeah. They, he's no life-threatening no life injuries, but he's going to be on some crutches for a while. Just, just walk it off. It's fine. Um, as far as the stages go, uh, William Byron won stage one. Kevin Harvick won stage two. Um, and then kind of the big highlight uh, towards the end of the race was that you had, um, you know, Denny Hamlin really dominated the late stages. And that was your pick uh, to win B. Scott. You know, it was basically your pick to win in Denny Hamlin, my pick to win in Kevin Harvick. They were duking it out. And I honestly was pulling for Hamlin because he's never won at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway before. So I thought that might be a cool thing, even though I'm not a super big Denny Hamlin fan. And then um, I guess, you know, the, the forces of B must have heard that, like, I was kind of slightly pulling for him, and they're like, crash kiss of death. And so, <laughs> so he it's ends your up. your fault, Craig. It is my fault. I'll, I'll take 100% of the blame. Uh, but he, uh, I, what did he do? He cut a tire, right? Is that what happened? And that's why he, or something. He blew um, a tire. Yeah, he, he blew, blew a yeah, tire. Yeah, he blew a tire, hits the wall. So he is done um, with seven laps to go while he was leading. Um, Harvick takes over the lead and never relinquishes it. He led 68 of 168 laps en route to the win. It's his third Brickyard 400 win. So sneakily, you know, coming up on, you know, the Jeff Gordons of the world and the Elios of the world who have won multiple times at, you know. Well, he's already that, tied Elio. Right, true. So Sneaking up on the Rick Mears. Rick Mears and uh, and those kind of and, and, and those guys there. So, um, but a great race, a great race. I actually was – very entertained at the Brickyard. I mean, one of the reasons why I've kind of strayed away from NASCAR, you've heard me talk about it on the podcast before. I've kind of strayed away from the sport, not as big of a fan as I was maybe back in the day. Um, and I, you know, haven't been to the Brickyard since I believe like 2011 or 2012. It's been a minute since I've been there um, because the racing had gotten really stale um, and really bad. Um, and you I mean, you saw it and reflected in the attendance um, but this year, I mean, obviously, you know, you know, it, I, it was different circumstances and that kind of thing. But I, I honestly, watching this race this year, I was very entertained with what I saw uh, from the from the NASCAR guys. I know I've been watching a lot more NASCAR because you're kind of forced to. If you're a sports fan at all, you're kind of like, well, the only thing going on, unless if I don't want to watch, you know, a UFC fight, is is NASCAR or IndyCar. So I'm going to go ahead and watch those races. But you know, I had them on. Um, on Sunday, and I was I was genuinely entertained. I think this was a great weekend uh, for both sports to get themselves out there. Um, maybe you know pull some fans, you know, from you know IndyCar to NASCAR and vice versa. So I think it was a cool weekend to showcase, um, you know, basically both sports. And I was really uh, pleased with what I saw. Now, you know, it, it's one of those things where like I, I watched that race, and I had you know, with, with NASCAR and I found kind of renewed faith with, which with like, Hey, maybe if they do get lights, maybe if they, they do something else to kind of shake it up, maybe it's like that one ingredient. If they finally have the ingredient down, as far as, you know, the sport itself, you know, getting a little bit more entertaining, maybe that one final ingredient is lights or the road course or something like that. So, 
you know, I'm excited to see where the Brickyard can go because I think that was a really fun race. And then, you know, it was exciting to see uh, the IndyCars back at, uh, at Indianapolis again. So it was a fun it was a fun weekend. I thought it was really cool, um, and I think that it's something that can be successful in the future. We'll get more into that here in a little bit. But I think overall, the weekend was a lot of fun. I think it was it was a successful weekend uh, to have both series at the track. Yeah, it, it was a good weekend. Um, I think what made the the Brickyard so exciting was the multiple cautions, because the only time you actually saw legit you saw real racing going on was on the restarts and if somebody was at you would they you saw the guys figure out i'm sitting in third or fourth place down the back straightaway i can do this slingshot maneuver and maneuver get myself slingshot up into the up into the lead and you saw that being used multiple times but once they got stretched out once you got through that first or first or uh second lap from the restart there was, there was no passing. There was, if there, I mean, there maybe have been, it was just very little, very little passing. And if you had the lead, you checked out. You just ultimately checked out. That has been an issue year after year after year recently at the Brickyard. And that is what is keeping fans from wanting to watch it more or be in the stands for it. And I think there does need to be a change especially after what we saw in the Xfinity race. I think it would be wise of the Cup Series to look to a move to the road course. If, if they still want to run the Oval, fine. If they want to try to do two races at IMS, one on the Oval and one on the road course, I'd be okay with that as well. You know? But I, I think we need, it's time for us to now see these cars on the road course, especially after the show we saw the Xfinity series put on. That was the best racing that happened all weekend was in the Xfinity series. So I think it is time now to move the cup cars over to the road course, uh, whether that becomes the Brickyard or if you have the Brickyard 400 and you bring the cup cars back later for a road course race, which I, I could see Roger Penske pushing for as well. Yeah, I think- and- and since he's wanting to bring in these 24-hour endurance races, and he's going to be – he's definitely going to put lights in. Let's be honest. He's going to put lights in because he wants to have these 24-hour endurance races. Those are on the road course. So there's not only going to be lights around the oval. There's going to be lights on the road course. You really want to have some novelty? Let's bring the cup cars in for a night race on the road course. I mean, I'm definitely down for that. I think that would be really fun. And because, yeah, that kind of leads us into the, the final thing about – um, you know, that we really want to get into with, you know, this weekend is should you have more doubleheader weekends? I don't know how that would work, um, you know, in the future. I mean, with, you know, with the road course, I mean, you couldn't have it at the same time. And like we were talking before the show, B. Scott, uh, I think there's a few, you know, IndyCar purists that wouldn't want to see like the Brickyard be moved to May. So you could have, you know, the same type of weekend, you know, like you did this year and in future years. Um, but I think, um, you know, as far as growing both sports and the pro- popularity of both events, like I don't know if maybe the three, the three races at Indy, the two road course and the one, uh, you know, obviously the Indy 500 are, are going to be maybe something they do in the future, but I could definitely be on board with that. Maybe, you know, two races on the road course and one of them is the same weekend as the Brickyard. So you have the same exact thing happen every year. Um, I think that'd be a great thing for the sport. And yeah, I mean, lights around the road course would be incredible. And I mean, and I, I think, 
I think at minimum that would be something that would definitely improve the brickyard is if you had, you know, the brickyard at night, you know, and then, you know, turn around and, you know, at a different date had the road course, whether that was also at night um, or um, whether that was during the day. I think those would be kind of the best of both worlds to have two races. Um, I don't know what race you kick off the circuit for NASCAR. I mean, I'm sure there is one, don't get me wrong, but, (laughs) but I don't know necessarily, you know, what track, you know, you'd be willing to bump off for a second race at Indy, especially with the attendance being like it is for the Brickyard. So I think it'd have to be something where you're not getting rid of the Brickyard. So maybe trying the Brickyard with lights and seeing how that attracts people or maybe saying, Hey, look, you know, we did, you know, or having the Xfinity race with fans. So being like, Hey, when we, when we did the Xfinity, the Xfinity race on the road course, it drew this amount of fans so we could probably try it out for NASCAR. It'd be something. Yeah, but the thing is, Xfinity, Xfinity never draws the same amount of fans. Right, anyway. but I'm, but I'm saying so like that's gonna be that'd be a tough comparison. But I'm saying like, obviously, like there was no one in the stands for right. the, like the for for the Xfinity race when it was on the 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 oval before. So I mean, if you see, you know, a, a spike in attendance you know, and the race has good ratings or better ratings than a normal race, then you kind of know, okay, so the rating, because I mean, you can make that analysis. You can go, okay, the NASCAR race draws this amount of fans and this rating on a typical weekend. The Xfinity race draws, draws this amount of fans and this rating, you know, on a given weekend. But on the road course, the Xfinity guys drew this and this from a rating and attendance standpoint. So we, you know, we might be able to see the same exact bump for NASCAR is what I'm trying to get at. I don't even think you have to look at ratings and attendance and all that. But I'm saying if you're going to, because you're not getting rid of the brickyard though. That's I know you're not getting rid of the brickyard here. Here's the best way to go about it. Keep the brickyard July 4th, whenever you want it. Okay. Let, Let the Xfinity guys run on the oval as well. And then I have a feeling IndyCar is going to want to keep that second or the, basically the third IMS race like they're going to have this year in October when they have the Indy Corn 250, whatever it is. I, I, I don't know. I forget what it is. The Corn Fuel something. Um, that, the road course race in October. But is that Why during not? the playoff, though, for NASCAR? So? Well, but you're not adding a new – you're not adding – well, okay, let's take a okay. Let's take one of the races away from Michigan. You know, I don't even know if they race twice in Michigan still, or Chicagoland, or yeah. Kansas, or you know, you're always at these these same five tracks. It seems like every other week, take one of those away and throw in the road course at Indy in October, and have IndyCar, Xfinity, and NASCAR all running on the road course in the same weekend. It can be done because look, when IndyCar runs on the, for the when they run the Grand Prix, typically in May, it has IndyCar, Indy Lights, Pro Mazda, and there's I think there's one other series. There's like three or four total series running on the same day for, for that at at the on the road course. And a matter of fact, they get the Indy Lights and the Pro Mazda series. They get two races plus qualifying for both races and practices as well. So it, it can be done. I mean, and just think about the TV ratings that they'll get for that type of thing. NBC 
had some of the best ratings this past weekend that they've had in a very long time for racing because people were all over watching the sport. So it, it was good. It was really, really, really good for NBC. It was good for the track. I think it is time, though. I mean, you don't need to look at all the stats and everything. Just you can look at the performance on the track. You, you're, the blind eye could have told the, – the non-race fan could have sat back and said, okay, why aren't they all racing on the road course? I mean, and I don't know. Here we are. We're a bunch of nobodies at you know with our opinions but hopefully nascar and roger penske all saw something this past weekend and they go there is something we're missing out on right there that we need that that's the type of racing we need to get the fans back in the seats for nascar and i mean cars could you potentially because i'd be okay with because i think the thing is the brickyard the way it was originally formed because when the brickyard first started the racing was better and there was uh, and there was no road course because the road course was put in for F one. Mm-hmm. So which I just had I just thought of I was like, isn't it interesting that the same chicane that F one wanted you know IndyCar to put in or for Indianapolis to put in is the one that is in the road course now. The reason why F one left in the first place, but that's a completely different story. But anyway, um, but could you? I mean, when the Brickyard was originally thought of, those were kind of the things. You know, it was a better race. NASCAR was more popular, um, and there was no road course. So it was also a different style car too at that point. True, but could you potentially just put the brickyard on the road course? No, I have yeah. no problem with that. Yeah, there it, is like because the thing for I'm sorry, I don't mean to keep interrupting you, but like the thing, the thing with me is like the brickyard is you still want to race at Indy, you still want to have a brickyard, but I think that's completely solved by you know just if just flat putting it on the road course because you're not i don't know if you're adding a second date that's what i was trying to get at before is that you're not taking the brickyard away if you're like hey we're, we're doing a race on the oval you're or we're having a brickyard you're not taking that off the schedule at all like you're not you're, you're leaving the race still on the schedule no matter what so the only way is to either keep it on the oval and have a second race, which, you know, that's a whole other logistic thing. And, like, that's why I brought in the stats because, I, you know, I think with as poorly as the Brickyard does, you can't really justify, hey, you know that race that get, that used to be a super big draw and was super prestigious that now doesn't draw anything? Well, we wanted to do a second race there. I think that'd be awesome around a road course, which in the past, before this weekend, you know, road course racing, you know, at least my take on NASCAR road course racing – was you know that, those are more of the boring the more boring races typically um, on the circuit or at least that was my experience when I was a fan I didn't I didn't like watching the races Sears Point I didn't like watching the race of Watkins Glen because I thought those were more boring than the races that were you know on at Talladega and Daytona and all those you know the bigger well, tracks yeah compared to Talladega and Daytona well, every well, right that's what I'm saying so like <laughs> <coughs> excuse me so I'm just saying from the standpoint of hey you're not going to create a whole other weekend so hey. I mean, I don't know. Uh, is it like one and a half miles or two mi- or two and a half miles or whatever the road course is? Um, I was like, like, you could that, still yeah. you could still have the brickyard. You could just have it on the road course instead. And it, doing that and putting it at night, I mean, heck, that would be almost the perfect scenario. I mean, hey, the winner of the Xfinity race, Chase Briscoe, was just as excited about winning at IMS on the road course as he would have been on the oval. He grew up coming to IMS watching. 
you know, the Indy 500 and everything like that. So he was just super excited that he got to win at IMS. He got to kiss the bricks at IMS. He climbed the fence at IMS. That, that's all that ended up being mattering. It wasn't that he ran on the oval or ran on the road course. I would be totally fine if they wanted to try the brickyard on the road course, to be honest, because something has to change because the racing just isn't as exciting beyond the restarts. And if you don't have – the nice thing about Indy is that it does wear on the tires, so you're going to have wrecks because tires are going to get blown out. But if you don't – if you have a race that's pretty clean, it's – you all of a sudden you get in a green flag pit stop and it's just the leader on parade essentially. And that, that, that's, that's a shame because like you said, when it first started, heck, it wasn't even just when it first started, it was well into the two thousands where it was really, really good racing. And I, I you want to see something because you want to see the fans come back for it. Yeah. And I, sure. I think the road course one having it on the road course, the number of fans that you have in the stands for the Brickyard now would pretty much look really good confined to the road course. And two, I think it's just going to be, it would be so much more exciting racing. I, I think, I don't know. I mean, I, didn't we see Jeff Gordon like, set the track the road course record when he swapped cars one point with Juan Pablo Montoya. Montoya was yeah. in an F1. It was a long time ago. I think he set the track record unofficial, unofficially. It wasn't, you know, an official timing, but for, in an F1 car, and I think he did it again in, his, in the 24 car as well. But we now know that a stock car can run on that road course and put on a good show. So NASCAR, it's your move. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you for sure. Uh, before we get into the uh, NFL All-Decade team as we kind of wrap up here, um, we'll go ahead and remind you uh, that you can follow us at Crash Course FM on Twitter. You can like us on Facebook, Crash Course Podcast. Um, and then we also have a YouTube channel, which a quick announcement here. This will be the final podcast that will be premiered live on our Facebook page. We're actually going to start putting the – we'll post the link still on our Facebook page, um, but we're going to – um, start premiering it live on YouTube. So if you haven't had a chance to yet, go over to the YouTube channel and um, uh, and uh, subscribe. You know, turn notifications on, and that way you'll never miss um, a premiere live of the uh, of the video version of the podcast. Um, and so, and also, if you have you know any, uh, if you you know with what you're about to hear with the All Decade team, if you have any differences of opinion there, I want to weigh in on Victor Oladipo or uh, the races this weekend at the Brickyard or the future of the Brickyard, uh, feel free to hit us up, uh, anchor.fm. Um, that's where uh, we are, anchor.fm slash crash course. And you can hear us wherever podcasts can be heard, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, Google Podcasts, the whole nine yards. So um, speaking of yards, let's get into the NFL All-Decade team. Um, so uh, we're going to just – you know, we, I, I put a spot for – We've got one quarterback, two running backs, two wide receivers, a tight end. We did offensive line, defensive line, linebackers. We did every single position. We're putting it together on all-decade team. Like I said before, uh, we didn't really get an opportunity to do this at the end of the year. So because these leagues are all getting ready to start back up again, 
Um, we thought it would be fun, uh, or hopefully start back up again. Uh, we thought it would be fun to go through the all-decade team. So I'll go ahead. I'll do my offense first, and B. Scott, you give your offense. I'll give my defense. You give your defense and special teams. We'll, we'll lump them together. Um, so firstly, with my offense, the all-decade team, it's going to start out with uh, quarterback Tom Brady. So the way I went about this was I went with the stats, I went with uh, titles, and I went with, you know, what what they, you know, I hate this word when we're talking about draft stuff, but intangibles. So what kind of, you know, maybe what he meant to the sport, maybe what he meant, um, you know, you know, you know, his demeanor, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and so I went with Tom Brady as quarterback. I mean, it's tough as much as you might want to say, oh, well, it's this guy, it's that guy. I mean, I mean, the dude won Super Bowls. I mean, I know that a lot of the, you know, more impressive Super Bowls may have happened. Um, you know, in the in the decade previous, but he, he had the stats to back it up. He's won six Super Bowls. I know it's not all been in one decade, um, but he won. I think what he won uh, three uh, three in the last decade, and then three more this past decade. So I mean, you know, he's got the titles to back it up. I don't think anybody else is close to him as far as you know titles, um, at least in recent memory. Um, and then you've got, you know, this, like I said, the stats to back it up, and then. I mean, there's people that have never watched a football game in their life that know who Tom Brady is. And so, I mean, it's hard to, you know, kind of argue with that kind of recognition. So Tom Brady's, you know, at the top of the stat charts and a lot of different stats, he may not be number one in all of them, but he's up there. He's got the titles to back it up. He's got the bravado to back it up. Tom Brady, the all-decade quarterback for me. Running back wise for me, this is part of my inclusion of, you know, put, you know, basically making up an actual team instead of going like this is the best running back, this is the best wide receiver, you know, that way we had an actual, you know, team around everything. And so, because I did one kind of more based on stats and one based more on, you know, yes, maybe a little bit of the heart, but also, um, you know, more or less to that kind of notoriety and like off the field stuff. And um, so for me, uh, running back number one is Adrian Peterson. I mean, the dude just absolutely um, is a monster. You know, not only – because one thing I looked for, too, is longevity. How long, you know, did he play in the decade? Because if he had a fantastic, you know, like 2011 to 2014 and, you know, had you know had an amazing, you know, stats that way, I mean, sure, maybe. But, I mean, Adrian Peterson started back, you know, in 2008, 2009, you know, has been – you know, has just been not only somebody who has been in the league a long time and who has been able to be successful in a position that's almost been, you know, rendered obsolete or at least had been until the last couple of years. Um, you know, he's been productive. He's been, you know, he's on the top of the stats, uh, you, you know, just like I said with uh, Tom Brady. So he's another guy that's, you know, got the stats to back it up. Yeah, yeah he's never won a Super Bowl, but at the same time, you know, he's um, just been, you know, an incredible athlete. He's been able to, he, you know, yes, he's had a few injuries here and there um, that have kept him out for, you know, seasons, but he's been able to still bounce back from those injuries, you know, any one of those injuries. I mean, we've seen flash in the pan guys like your Chris Johnson's, you know, kind of flare up and then kind of go by the wayside. Adrian Peterson's been there the whole time. Um, running back number two for me is Frank Gore. Um, and that's just because the dude's been an absolute workhorse. He's at the top of the stats and he's made it work and been productive in a lot of different environments. I mean, you know, he weathered the storm, you know, with San Francisco through their kind of 
more darker years and they got better for a time. And so he, you know, stayed successful there. Um, you know, and then he went to the Indianapolis Colts in a situation where they, that was supposed to be putting together, you know, this amazing team and that ended up falling, falling through, but he was, you know, even at an older age as a veteran, he was still pulling that Colts team together. Um, then he goes to the Dolphins. I think he was even, I, I don't know if he was on the bills at all, but basically he's been yeah, on a bunch on of different, bills last season. Yeah. He's been on a bunch of different teams and been productive for those teams. Kind of like Adrian Peterson, where, you know, he's got the stats to back it up and then he's just goes wherever he goes, he performs and he performs at a high level. So for me, I could not put my guy Frank Gore on there. He's been absolutely, you know, amazing wide receivers. I went with uh, Antonio Brown. Um, you know, again, at the top of most every single statistical category when it comes to, you know, receiving touchdowns, receiving yards, he's been virtually unstoppable. I mean, th- you know, say what you want about what happened in the last, you know, 12 months or so, but, you know, on the field, he's been amazing. He kind of, you know, he started out more as kind of, you know, an underrated kind of kick, re- you know, punt returner, and then he just gradually became this, you know, unstoppable force of an athlete. Um, so he's a wide receiver for me. Then I've got Larry Fitzgerald, and not only because he's got good stats to back it up, but because he's been – you could probably put him on the all-decade. This is probably a second consecutive all-decade team if you were to throw him on there because he's just been around so much. I want to see Larry Fitzgerald win a Super Bowl. I hope this happens. I don't know if it will. Um, but the man has just – I mean – Again, it's kind of like with Frank Gore. No matter what, no, no matter what the situation has been for Larry Fitzgerald, he has produced. So whether it's been with Carson Palmer and Kurt Warner, he's been amazing. Whether it's been with Kevin Cobb, he's been amazing. You know, so he's been through all these different things. If, uh, oh, I can't think of the kid's name that came out of UCLA that was the starting quarterback two years ago. But yeah, you know, he he's been through different quarterback changes and still been amazing. Um, because, you know, he could easily be on two. I think he's played in – no, he's just played in the in uh, in the one, in the two decades. But he was basically worthy of, of being on two all-decade teams. So that's why I put him on there. Easy choice for tight end, it's Rob Gronkowski. Um, you know, there's a couple other, you know, tight ends you could go with. Um, you could go with Jimmy Graham, but he kind of had a life comes at you fast moment. He was at the top of the, you know – you know, one of the top uh, tight ends in the league. Uh, and then kind of once he got away from uh, New Orleans, things kind of went downhill pretty fast. Um, as far as, you know, being one of the best tight ends, I mean, he's still productive, but definitely not where he once was. Um, and then you could also, um, you know, there's a couple other guys you could go with. You could maybe go with Antonio Gates. You could maybe go with, um, you know, but I mean, you talk about a tight end who's changed the position and kind of transcended the position. It's Rob Gronkowski. Um, you know, again, it's kind of the same with Tom Brady. You could go to someone who's never watched football a day in their life. and They're going to know who Gronk is. Um, and, and, you know, subtle. Watch the mass singer. Exactly. You uh, the, the fact that he made the top nine is still crazy to me, but that's a different story for a different day. Um, and then as far as offensive line uh, goes, um, for me, it's Joe Thomas, Michael Yonda, uh, Marquise Pouncey, Zach Martin, and Tyron Smith. The main one I want to talk about is Joe Thomas, who, again, you know, you talk about he's productive, longevity, um, and has been, again, one of the more known offensive linemen, um, if you want to get into that as well. So he's been super productive. Other guys that I chose on that list, 
mainly because, you know, they've been to a lot of Pro Bowls and things like that. So uh, that's my offensive uh, all-decade team. Uh, so you got Tom Brady, Adrian Peterson, Frank Gore, Antonio Brown, Larry Fitzgerald, Gronk, Joe Thomas, Michael Yonda, Marquise Pouncey, Zach Martin, Tyron Smith. Um, you know, all guys, like I said, that have not only, you know, some of them have won championships, not all of them, but have been very productive at their positions and just kind of also transcended their positions um, and, and been very successful that way as well. All right. So for my offense, you know, it's hard not to pick Tom Brady just because of the, the amount of Super Bowls that he's won. But I'm going to go with Drew Brees at quarterback, mostly because Drew Brees has put together record-breaking performances. Um, Tom Brady is just – He's won a lot of Super Bowls, and he, he's guided his teams to those Super Bowls. But Drew Brees has put up outstanding numbers and been on the doorstep of, a super, of the Super Bowl a couple different times. Um, so, yeah, I'm going with Drew Brees there. My running backs, I, I do have Adrian Peterson as well. Um, Adrian is just – I mean, come on. He's one of the, non, the few non-quarterbacks that have won MVP. That, that's, that's pretty impressive. Um, the second one, it, 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 he's kind of, this is a kind of a different pick, but Marshawn Lynch. Yeah. Um, listen, just go with me here. When Marshawn Lynch goes full on beast mode, there's not many teams that can truly stop him. I mean, in 2014, he set the record for uh, the most broken tackles in a single season. When he is on, he's on. And yeah, he's had some ups and downs and everything, but when you look at – from the time that he was really playing year after year after year after year, he was arguably one of the best, if not the best running back in the league. Um, his time in Seattle was just outstanding. I mean, obviously we always point back to um, the, the Super Bowl, the, the Seahawks versus the Patriots. If they would just have given the ball to Marshawn Lynch, the Seahawks would have won another Super Bowl. So, I mean, that's how much he meant to that team. Um, my wide receivers, uh, I, I went with Julio Jones and um, Antonio Brown, mostly because Larry Fitzgerald, he's been good, but when you look at Julio Jones and Antonio Brown, they've been that much better. And nothing against Larry Fitzgerald. It's just, you know, Larry Fitzgerald is a solid wide receiver. Year after year after year, you, you know what you're going to get from him. But Julio Jones and Antonio Brown were just dominant wide receivers. Um, and, you know, I mean, Julio Jones, he, he was pretty much the offense at one point for Atlanta when they made that Super Bowl run. And then Antonio Brown, I mean, there's not much more you can say about him than what you've already said. And I just love his story and every coming up from a Mac program and everything as well. Um, tight end. It's, I mean, it is Rob Gronkowski. He's the most dominant tight end that we've ever seen. Another name you could look at would have been Travis Kelsey, but man, I think the case could be made more for this next decade, like the 2020s. Like yeah. I, I still don't think Kelsey. I don't think we've seen the best of Travis Kelsey. I think, yet. I think, uh, Travis Kelsey and George Kittle are going to be to this decade what like Antonio Gates and Rob Gronkowski were to last decade. Right. So yeah, but it's it's definitely Rob Gronkowski. My offensive line, uh, Joe Thomas. I mean, Joe Thomas is going to be a first. He's going to be a Hall of Famer. <laughs> let's let's just be honest. He's a Hall of Famer. There's, you don't have to say much about that. He's a surefire. 
Um, so left tackle, Joe Thomas, left guard, Evan Mathis, um, center. This is where I kind of went back and forth. I know everybody loves Marquise Pouncey, but for me, I ended up going with Travis Frederick. Um, even yeah, he, his, his career was cut short due to illness. Um, but this guy just was, I don't know, just one of, he was just, think of like a Jeff Saturday type player. This guy just really commanded his line. He, I mean, I think he really was the, the driving force behind the, the Cowboys having any legitimate um, offense because he could see things that Dak Prescott didn't see or any other quarterbacks saw. And, you know, he just, he was just a smart football player. Um, the other guy I looked at closely was Chris Mack. Um, you know, he's a guy that's bounced around a couple teams. He's been paid like the, as the top center, but I think just Travis Frederick, just the way he commanded that entire line um, makes him the best center. Uh, right guard, Marshall Yonda. And then at right tackle, I have Lane Johnson. All right, as far as defense is concerned, uh, first with defensive tackle. Um, so for me, Aaron Donald, um, easy choice for me. He's one of the best uh, defensive tackles in the league. Um, just a sensational athlete for um, the uh, L.A. Rams. He really um, had, you know, pulled that defensive line together uh, during that Super Bowl run. Um, it has been, you know, one of the top, you know, top guys as far as sacks go and that kind of thing. So easy choice for Aaron Donald. And then I went, I, it was tough for me with defensive tackles because pretty much everybody defensive that I looked into was not a defensive tackle. So it was, it's tough to find another one that's really great. But Geno Atkins was one that popped out for me uh, just because one of the things that's been good for the Bengals over the, you know, the one good thing that's been good for the Bengals over the last few years um, you know, has been their defense. And he's been one of the anchors of that defensive line. He's, you know, came into the league early 2010s um, and has been, you know, productive, you know, even through, you know, some of the darker years uh, for the Cincinnati Bengals. So um, he's there for me. Uh, defensive end, easy choices for me. J.J. Watt and Von Miller. J.J. Uh, Watt, again, you know, just, you know, again, you, you, know, you look for kind of the triple threat. He's a guy that, is super well recognized. So I know that's not the most important thing, but, you know, he's a super recognizable face for the league. He's, you know, at the top of the list when it comes to sacks. Um, you know, yeah, he doesn't maybe have, you know, he doesn't have, he doesn't have any titles, but, I mean, he's a guy who, um, you know, has really been key. He's kind of the guy that helped get the Texans that extra, you know, step, got the Texans kind of on the map. Um, because, I mean, you, you know, yeah, they had Mario Williams back in the day when they were first, you know, kind of getting in, you know, getting things going in Houston. But J.J. Watt, I think, helped put that team on the map and made them maybe, you know, he's, he would be the face of that franchise, and, you know, if you were to, you know, uh, you know, you know, Deshaun Watson maybe at one point, but he's the face of the franchise for the Texans for sure. And then Von Miller just completely, you know, you know, carried that Denver defense, um, you know, during that Super Bowl run that they made and has been super, you know, productive, super, uh, you know, super versatile um, and has really been, you know, a big uh, key there. Actually, no. So, um, Von Miller's on my, on my linebacker too. So, I got to come up with another linebacker real quick. I know Von has been like a hybrid as far as, you know, being on the defensive line and linebacker. So, that's a little bit of a foobar by me, but 
Um, we'll keep we'll keep them in mind. That's okay. If the all American teams in college can say Rondell, put, they can create a position called flex, yeah. just to fit Rondell Moore into their <laughs> all American teams. You can you can do whatever you got to do. <laughs> so for linebacker, uh, we'll sub Von Miller, who I have on here twice, uh, out for Khalil Mack. I what I tried to do was you know Khalil Mack's only been in the league. Uh, since 2014, so I was like, oh, so he's not – he was only there for half the decade, but he completely changed that defense for Oakland. He's been a tremendous force for the Bears. I know they haven't really done much with him, uh, but he immediately changed kind of the culture and the landscape for Chicago when he went over there. So we'll throw him in there. And then has there been any linebacker that's been more, you know, that's been, you know, kind of more, you know, recognizable, you know, more successful as far as like in recent memory, um, you know, as you know, when you think of a, you know, successful linebacker in the NFL, I think you think of Luke Keekley. Um, you know, he's a guy that has really been tremendous for that Panthers defense. And unfortunately, you know, concussions kind of ran him out of the league, I think a little bit too soon. Um, and then I went Bobby Wagner. Uh, he's the first of, uh, I went with four um, Seattle Seahawks on this because I mean, if you, if you were to go back, I know there's been some good defenses, um, you know, throughout the 2010s. But when you think of like, you know, each each kind of decade has had their, you know, their crazy good defense. I know technically the 20, the 2000s had two with the Buccaneers uh, and the uh, Ravens. Uh, but uh, I mean, the 2013, 2014, whatever, you know, the year that was uh, with the Seattle Seahawks was just incredible. So I've got four Seahawks on here. And so that's Super Bowl MVP, Bobby Wagner. Um, cornerbacks, um, I've got Richard Sherman. I mean, Richard Sherman, again, kind of like, you know, Larry Fitzgerald has not only, you know, played a long time, uh, you know, but has also been uh, super productive, um, you know, has been good for, you know, the Seahawks throughout his career, was good uh, the couple of years he's played with uh, the 49ers. So um, definitely on the list for me. And then Patrick Peterson um, has been, you know, a big force on that defense. Uh, for the Arizona Cardinals as well. So uh, I went with him in that corner. And then safeties. Um, so <laughs> I, won't, I won't lie, I consulted a few lists uh, for safeties. I went with Earl Thomas because he's, uh, you know, at the top of the charts statistically in a lot of different categories. So I went with him. You know, he was on that great Seahawks defense. He was on the top of the list statistically for the decade. So that was an easy choice for me. Uh, but there wasn't really a guy I wanted to go with uh, second on the list. I mean, you know, uh, the Hall of Fame throws out, uh, you know, they did a list. They threw out Eric Berry, which, yeah, but, I mean, I think there's been guys that have been a little bit better. Um, Eric Weddle was kind of a guy I was like, well, yeah, he's statistically good and he's kind of been around, but I don't know. I didn't – I Eric Weddle wasn't doing it for me. Um, so I threw in one of my personal favorites. These last three names are going to just be, you know, my favorite players that played these positions. Uh, Cam Chancellor. Uh, I love watching Cam Chancellor play. Um, he's had some of the most electrifying plays, uh, you know, during you know during that those playoff runs for the Seattle Seahawks. So for me, you know, a tremendous force on that defense as well. So I went Cam Chancellor. So that's my defense: Aaron, Aaron Donald, Geno Atkins, JJ Watt, Bob Miller, Khalil Mack, Luke Keekley, Bobby Wagner, Patrick Peterson, Richard Sherman, Earl Thomas, and Cam Chancellor. And then as far as special teams go, this is completely one thousand percent. Uh, just complete bias, but it's special team, so who cares? Fight me on it. Um, kicker, Adam Vinatieri, as you can probably guess. Kick, uh, punter, Pat McAfee, without a doubt. Uh, you know, those two guys, um, 
you know, are incredible. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, Adam Vinatieri has the stats to back it up. And then Pat McAfee's Pat McAfee. So, you know, not only, again, one of those guys who not only has the stats, but can, you know, you know not, not only talks to talk, but can back it up as well. So uh, Adam Vinatieri and Pat McAfee on special teams for me. All right. So I'm going to start off with my interior defensive line as well. And hang with me here on this one. First one is Aaron Donald. I mean, come on. Yeah, we're not even going to go into that one. The second one, this is one you're going to have to stick with me on, J.J. Watt. Um, J.J. Watt did – he began his career uh, and played significant volume of snaps inside uh, on the interior defensive line before he transitioned to the edge. J.J. Uh, Watt is a, was essentially Aaron Donald before Aaron Donald came along. And so I, I'm going to have J.J. Watt because I have to fit J.J. Watt in there. I mean, there's, there's – he's just been that good at different positions. And he's, he's one of those players that can bump inside and also bump outside and he's dominant in both places. So then at the edge, I have Von Miller. I mean, that one speaks for itself as well. I mean, he's not, he doesn't play at the same volume and the same level that he, as he, that he used to today, um, which is sad, but I mean, he's still a very good dominant player. And then I have Khalil Mack as one of my edge players. He's a player that, um, yeah, he, did play linebacker for a while and everything, but he is essentially, he's an edge player. Um, so that's where I have Khalil Mack uh, at linebacker, Luke Keekley. I would have loved to have seen where his career would have gone had he not retired. Um, man, he was a, oh man. Talk about just a generational talent essentially. Um, and then, you know, this one is, this next one is kind of hard. Um, I have uh, actually, let me, I'm trying to, I'm pulling, I got my list pulled up here. I don't think I picked an, okay. Yes, I did. I picked the right amount of players. I was worried <laughs> there for a while there that I didn't pick the right amount. Um, so my last two linebackers are Patrick Willis and Bobby Wagner. I know Patrick Willis, you're like, really Patrick Willis? When he was able to play, I mean, that guy could lay – Before he had his leg snapped in half, he was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so, Patrick, I got, Patrick Willis and Bobby Wagner are my last two linebackers. Um, at corner, um, I have – this is going to be – I have Richard Sherman as my first corner, and um, I have, also have Chris Harris, Jr., uh, both of these guys have played in the league for a while, um, and they're just exceptional talents. Chris Harris is it's actually pretty amazing that he was an undrafted rookie. That is um, an out, that's just outstanding at, as well. And then at safety, to round things out on defense, I have Eric Weddle and Earl Thomas. Um, both of these players have just been super solid for their teams. And Earl Thomas, I mean, I'm, he's just – He's one of the most, in my mind, he's one of the more underrated players in the NFL right now. And then on special teams, my kicker, I have Justin Tucker. Um, he's, he has been one of the, he's been the most accurate kicker this past decade, but he is really rapidly closing in on being named as one of the best kickers in league history as far as accuracy goes. Um, I mean, Adam Vinatieri, he's just he's a he's solid, but he as the, as the decade has worn has gone on, 
his his game has decreased significantly, whereas Justin Tucker just keeps going this decade. So Vinatieri can have the beginning half of the 2000s, whereas Justin Tucker owns this the 2010s. And then punter, you have to go with Pat McAfee. There just hasn't been a punter as dominant as Pat McAfee. Pat McAfee could put the ball exactly where he wanted to put the ball. And then if you returned it and you broke through all the other tacklers, you weren't getting by Pat McAfee. I mean, Pat McAfee could, if you needed him to be a a backup quarterback, he could be a backup quarterback. This is a guy that just, he played football. He was a football player. He wasn't some soccer player you brought in to kick the ball every now and again. This is a guy that. He was, a, he was a football player through and through. And it, I, I wish he would have kept playing, but you know what? He walked away when he walked away, and he was one of the best punters in the NFL. So that's how we're going to remember him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, no, I mean, and, and you, you'll brought up some guys, you're like, oh, wait, it's, you know, this guy, it's Patrick Willis, it's whoever. I mean, those are guys, you know, Marshawn Lynch, Patrick Willis that I had on, like, you know, my honorable mentions as far as, like, those are all close. I mean, all these guys – we're mentioning just you know transcended the game for the last decade. So excited to see you know who makes the list, um, you know, and and who which of these guys you know perform well, you know, even onto this decade. But yeah, uh, all all great members of the list, and you know, exciting to watch those players play. I mean, you know, mentioning some of those players brought some great memories to my mind. So I'm I'm I you know definitely definitely some great names on that list, and that will do it. Uh, for this week's edition of the Crash Course Podcast. Uh, remember, you can follow us on Facebook, Crash Course Podcast. Uh, follow us on Twitter, um, at Crash Course FM. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Crash Course Podcast. Um, like I said, this will be the last week that we will premiere live on Facebook. All the premieres in the future, when we come back in two weeks, uh, will be on uh, or on uh, on YouTube. So make sure you uh, stay tuned for that. And remember, you can uh, hear the podcast every Tuesday uh, at, at anchor.fm slash crash course. Um, and then wherever podcasts can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, wherever you can hear podcasts, you can listen to the show. Like I said, if you want to talk to us about, um, you know, Victor Depot or the races or the all decade team, make sure to hit us up at anchor.fm slash crash course. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, but until um, a couple of weeks from now, until, you know, we'll be back. Uh, with the uh, preview for the baseball season and then after that the preview for the NBA season we hope there's no hiccups in between now and then Uh, but until then have a good week everybody